0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Song facts. Get your
1: song Facts right here. Get your Song Facts. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of the Song Facts podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan. And this podcast is proudly a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you are like me and are a massive fan of all things The Bales, then we have such a great show for you today. We're with Mr. Ken McNabb, who is the author of the book And in the End, which details in a month-by-month manner the year 1969 for this amazing band. We focus mainly on the songs throughout this time, but there was so much going on behind the scenes as well that is impossible not to discuss. Whether it's the turbulence of the business dealings and their new manager Alan Klein to the rising star of George Harrison as a songwriting for us, or the global zigzagging of John and Yoko's peace movement, we touch on it all. So stay tuned for a wonderfully articulate Ken McNabb, and be sure to buy his book, and in the end... Or even more on this often discussed time in Beatles lore. Here we have Ken McNabb. Okay, Ken McNabb, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, Cody. Thank you very much for having me, Owen. Thanks for coming on Song Facts. And uh, I, like I said before, I'm, I'm so excited. I could, I've, I've, I've I'm someone who's probably a little bit older but I'm still obsessed with the Beatles and I've never really gotten to talk to a, a, a an expert like you so I'm really excited about it and I guess question number 1 as a fan and just I've I've always just read musical biographies. I can't imagine if I had them all how many would be on my bookshelf but I've gone through so many and I just love them. So the fact that I got to read your book over the last couple of weeks has been amazing. Uh, But I'm always so amazed at the details that go into it. So I'm kind of just interested in the... How do you go about your research and and then the organization of a book like this?
0: Well, with a book like this, um, you you had to become a bit of a... You had to combine the the qualities of a rock and roll detective with an archaeologist, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Because you're talking about events now that happened half a century ago. Um, So, you know, I, I mean, like you said, like you said yourself... I'm I'm in a room here which is surrounded by books about the Beatles, you know. They're the most written about band in history. Yeah. So when you come to a project like this, you 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 have to ask yourself the salient question, Corey, which is this does the world need another another book about the <laughs> Beatles? Um and and the answer, because there's some fantastic projects out there, some brilliant books and great pieces of work, uh, guys who have really, you know taking it very seriously there's they're serious scholars and they're one of these bands that seem to attract that level of scholarship from people Mm -hmm. so I, I, I you know approached it with the view of first of all with it being 1969 when I first did it for the UK version of the book it was that landmark hook you know because as journalists we're always looking for anniversaries or landmark moments that you can attach something to so I took the view that you know, could you look at 1969 through the prism of half a century, and perhaps using that sort of uh, that sort of ideal of being a rock and roll detective, and piece together all the elements from 1969, and produce it almost in a diary form, Corey? You know, because I quite like diaries, you know, where, yeah. and then people can people can then dip in and dip out various sections, the the, the you know the ones that are more appealing to them so I thought if you could stitch together a narrative a month by month narrative looking at the events that happened in in specific months and then by doing that then you're compiling this narrative throughout the entire year and by doing so you're you're hopefully producing some kind of cohesive whole at the end of it and it was just such a I always say it was a chaotic year. I hope I didn't get lost in translation. No. A chaotic year and yeah. a chaotic year. Um, <laughs> and you know, I, I just, I'm, I've always thought with the Beatles that the, 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 music is the music, but the story of the band is, is really compelling. In that sense, you know, for people, um, and if you like, if you like a good story, then the Beatles really, they're, they're, they're unrivaled in in that in that aspect for being just a fantastic story on its own.
1: I completely agree and I think that it's, for me anyway, for some reason 1969 seemed to be the year that for whatever reason I knew the least about and I'm I'm curious did you find that that was that you uncovered some things that you were like you didn't know going
0: into it as someone who studied the Beatles a lot? Yeah well the idea, the idea in a sense was uh, not to try and you know uncover some mystical revelation but to to try and Peel back the layers, um, and you know, speak to the only way you could do this with any credibility, Corey, was to try and speak to people who were in the band's orbit at that time, either professionally or personally. Because the problem with the with a band like the Beatles is that stories become legends, and legends become myths, mm-hmm. and and you have to try and dive down into the weeds, dive down into the the the. the The tangled roots of their own Arcadia, in a sense, and try and separate fact from fiction. And the only way you could do that was to speak to people. So, what for me was interesting was to be able to speak to people who were, in a sense, eyewitnesses to history, uh, and get their taken events. Because the problem is that, as I say, you know, there's been there's so much mythology attached to the band nowadays. It's only natural. I understand it. I mean, if Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr can't remember key points of their own past then what chance do serious historians have exactly uh, so anyway i approached it with the view to try and speak to people i, I think i spoke to around about 35 people uh, for example cameramen who uh, were in the in twickenham studios when they were filming let it be uh, dan richter uh, american guy who stayed with john and yoko Throughout much of 1969, yeah, um, a guy who was involved with uh, well, maybe come on to that. Recording, give peace a chance. So, and and when I spoke to these guys, what I did find, Corey, was that, that even after all this time, even for a guy like me who you think you've read everything, that you can still tease out fantastic stories. Yeah, uh, and I took the view that if these stories were new to me, then perhaps I had a shot at this. Because yeah. if they were new to me, then they might be interesting for other people who hadn't, who who were unaware of them. Uh, so yeah, so that was the challenge, and 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 that was the goal in a sense to try and bring something new to the table. As I say, not some mystical new revelation. Uh, you know, I mean, even even today you hear things like there are secret recordings that they were going to continue after nineteen sixty nine. I don't believe that for a second, <laughs> uh, and we'll maybe come on to the Peter Jackson reboot for Let It Be. Um, so anyway that was the challenge and that was the goal and I think by and large I managed to pull it off uh, yeah so quite happy about that
1: yeah. yeah I agree I don't I don't know if there's another book that I've read that's been this month-to-month linear account and I kind of want to jump into that so it's opens in London obviously just cold London in January and um, the kind of right away goes into that the recording of Let It Be In and then the the obvious infamous rooftop concert on 3 Seville Road and um well, I'm just what are some details that our listeners might not know that kind of took place behind the scenes that day without you know giving away the key takeaways from that you might get if you read the book?
0: Yeah the important thing was as you said the the the, the assembled, Avengers assembled, the Beatles assembled in um, January 2nd, 1969, to begin work on what would eventually become Let It Be. Mm-hmm. But at that time it was called Get Back. And, and I think it's important here to apply some context to the period. I think that's the important thing here is context um, because they, they had not long finished the grueling sessions for the White Album, yeah. which as everybody will know, is a double album. And they took five months to record the White Album can't remember how many songs off the top of my head maybe 23 songs or so yeah. uh, and it was a really draining experience um, and here they were less than two months later back in the studio and the context is this uh, it's a bit like a venn diagram Corey. if you imagine a venn diagram if we can all go back to our wonderful school days and you can imagine a venn diagram with the beatles in the middle of it you've got john lennon paul mccartney george harrison and ringo Starr in the middle and shooting off in various directions are these other diagrams. And these other diagrams can consist of uh, musical issues, business issues, personal issues, and simply maturity issues. Yeah. Uh, but the context is that by the time they arrived back in the studio uh, at, I should say, Paul McCartney's behest, um, they were professionally and personally exhausted. They were just drained.
1: Yeah, you but get that Paul time.
0: McCartney, Paul McCartney is he is a relentless workaholic. He has an incredible work ethic, um, and he he arrived back in the studio. I mean, music. I once spoke to Hamish Stewart, who plays with who played with uh, McCartney's touring and studio band in the late '80s, early '90s, and he told me that music just pours out of him. We can't help it. Yeah. It's almost like a curse. So you know, he would arrive in 1969, and he already has some great songs. Uh, under his belt, like for example, let it be. kicking around mm-hmm. long and winding roads, kicking around two of us, but the other three are suffering from a terrible ennui, a terrible lethargy, because they've really just they've reached that point where you know there are other things happening in their lives. Being a beetle is not necessarily for John, George, and Ringo. Well, certainly for John and George, the number one priority. But here you have you know Sergeant Major McCartney drilling them into line one more time uh, because he thinks that it's important to keep the band going to maintain that productivity and um, but it was difficult for the other other three at that point because as i say a dreadful lethargy had begun to creep in for all sorts of reasons there's i mean there's
1: always everybody's not going to be on the same plane creatively all the time so if McCartney's doing that i mean who can expect to be able to keep up with that and You know, they were obviously under a lot of pressure from the label. I forget exactly what their deal was, but they had to produce a certain amount of music every year. So it might not be challenging for Paul to do that, but then you're also going to have these egos coming in. And that's a lot what you talk about in the book of, you know, I want to have this song on. And I think one of the interesting things that I noticed is the precursor to kind of what became the Abbey Road Suite was these combination of songs, which they kind of started with, majorly with A Day in the Life, but then they really got into um, with I Got a Feeling. I think that that was a McCartney and a Lennon thing that they just said, let's just mush these together. They're two very distinctly different parts.
0: With that specific song, there's an element of two separate songs being fused together. And they did this throughout their careers. A Day in a Life is obviously a very good example of it. And it's a, it's a great illustration of uh, Lennon and McCartney's ability to bring two different parts of a song and, and merge them together to provide to produce this incredible whole um you mentioned the Abbey Road Suite, uh, and George Martin had, for a long time, been urging them to consider moving in a, a more symphonic direction. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, this is the era of heavy rock, Cody, you know, where, you know, you've got Fleetwood Mac, The Stones, The Who, uh, Zeppelin are just taking off. Yep. In America, I think you've got the Butterfield, Paul Butterfield band, yep. Iron Butterfly. Uh, all, the, all these kind of groups are now in a much heavier focus. And the Beatles could easily compete with them without any problem. Um, it's interesting to note on, on Abbey Road Suite, actually, that, you know, I mean, we all love the medley and it works really well. But, you know, such was the disparate, the, such was the schism between John and Paul at that period for many other reasons that, uh, you know, it was difficult for them to be on the same page, even musically. I mean, at one point for Abbey Road, which is, of course, a great album and their last love letter to the world, but at one point, just to illustrate how relations were and how fraught things were, Lennon at one point wanted all his songs to be on one side of the album and McCartney's songs could be on the other. And, of course, that's just impractical. I mean, (laughs) inside a Beatle democracy, that ain't going to work at all, you know? Uh, so, you know, a, a common sense eventually came through, you know, and we have the, the, the medley in the form that we all know and love. Uh, but it just shows you that there were difficulties uh, at that time. I mean, the medley is a, is a tapestry of, again, a whole load of songs that had been lying around for quite a while, actually, yeah. some of them. Some of them went back to India, early 68, Mean Mr. Mustard. In a a sense, they're they're only fragments. They're not even, there's an argument for saying they're throwaways, but somehow or other, thanks to their incredible musical genius, they were able to piece together this jigsaw, if you like, into what is an incredible piece of work.
1: It really is. I think it's probably my favorite, whatever it is, 15, 16 minutes of music that they've put together back to back. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is that Lennon and McCartney are, and I think this is a quote, ferreting around in their bottom drawers for decent material. And I'm wondering what do you attribute for being the main reason for this?
0: I think, well, in, in a sense, Paul McCartney always had material, right? As I said, you know, he's he's got to be one of the most prolific songwriter stroke musicians of all time. Yeah. Uh, I think that's beyond beyond reasonable argument. Um John Lennon was struggling, I think, creatively. Um, and this is just a personal opinion because it's no secret that he had a heroin problem Mm -hmm. in 1969. And I think that it did stymie his lyrical creativity to a degree. uh, And I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, And also it affected his behavior. Um, I I always think of John at that period, Corey as like being a volcano trapped in ice because you're never quite sure what John Lennon you're going to get. Um, as a result of his, you know, it, it was more than dabbling in heroin, you know. I mean, Dan Richter um, is a very well-known American actor who, for people who don't know, was actually the ape in the opening sequence for 2001, A Space Odyssey. He was a famous mime artist. So if you look at 2001, A Space Odyssey, and you see the ape with the club, well, that's Dan. That's Dan Richter, you know. So amazing, really. And... Um, and he and he would tell me stories about, and he was very candid um, uh, and about the, the difficulties uh, that Lennon had with heroin. And the reason I think it maybe stymied his creativity in a sense was because if you take a track like Come Together, or, or even if you look at some of the songs on, I mean, uh, on the medley, lyrically, I don't think they're fantastic. Uh, Come Together is one of the most popular and enduring Beatle tracks of all time. Um, if you look at the lyrics then you a reasonable person would be entitled to wonder what the hell he's talking about you know yeah. i mean you know in 1967 that kind of that kind of uh you know that kind of hippie gobbledygook was was treated like holy script but, yeah. but by 19 by 1969 flower power had withered in the vine and and people were looking for something a bit more less ethereal shall we say Yeah. Uh, but you know I can hear people in the background saying wow don't tell me he's criticising John Lennon as a songwriter no I, I love John you know I think he was the beating heart of the Beatles I really do and without him there, there is no band yeah. but if you look at some of his lyrics from 1969 um, and if you take a song like I want you she's so heavy I think there's only 13 words in it 13 words in it. Now, does that does that mean necessarily that he was lyrically bankrupt at that point? The flip side of that argument is, well, hang on, you know, he said everything he wanted to say in those 13 words. So what's your problem? I mean, he was being extremely direct in what was an extremely direct love song to Yoko Ono. So what's your problem? if If he says it in 13 words, then he says it in 13 words. John Cage Doesn't use any (laughs) words, so so you know. um, But it's just a personal opinion.
1: I I think I mean I feel like you can easily argue that either way. You can look at that and be like, yeah, he just kind of slacked off, had a good riff, and decided to just put some words to it, and only came up with thirteen. Or he got this really great message of love across in thirteen words. That's pretty incredible too. So it just kind of depends on the lens that you look at it through.
0: There are absolutely two ways of looking at it. Another good example is Sun King, which is very sparse lyrically. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that? Does that mean that he uh, he'd run out of ideas, or just a f- plain simple fact that, as you say, he said it all in the words that he wanted to use? So, so you know, who am I? <laughs>
1: yeah, you know. Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this. I'm glad you brought up come together because when I was putting together the outline for this conversation, I I went to the song facts website where they've got they've got like truthful things that have been proven that are actual song facts. But then underneath, they let, um, you know, fans just go off and just put in their interpretations. And if you go and read the thread for come together, it's it's pretty incredible what some of the people have to say about that. I want to kind of jump over now into this: what's going on with George during this time, because in the book you write about how George was writing some of his most notable stuff, which I think is is pretty clear, um, but was being treated as a sort of younger brother by Lennon and McCartney. And I'm just wondering, can you expand on that a little bit for us?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Cody. I mean, my my I think 1969 was an extremely fertile period in George Harrison's career. Uh, you know, this George was the dark horse coming up in the inside rail in 1969. Uh, you know, on the White Album, especially he had he had uh, produced while well, my guitar gently weeps. I still think is the one Beatle track, Corey, which I think even now gets better with age. Really? I think I think it's that good. You know, yeah. every time I hear it, I I I just like it, love it even more. But George had always been treated by John and Paul as an economy class Beetle simply because he wasn't, and, and he isn't, and he wasn't uh, in their league as a songwriter. I mean you know John and Paul were the hit factory you know they were the they were the the Brill the Beetle Brill building in a sense uh, and George would be given his maybe one or two songs on an album if he was lucky but you know for a long time George had been producing some really strong material mm-hmm. and by the time 1969 comes up he has something like maybe up to 30 songs in his bottom drawer and and he knows that some of them are very good but it's very very difficult. To find space on a Beatles album for three principal songwriters yeah um, but as everybody knows uh, George's contributions to Abbey Road are simply outstanding yep you know we all know here comes the Sun and something which many people would argue are actually maybe the stellar tracks on the album
1: yeah
0: Um, and and, you know something outside of yesterday I think uh, is the most is the second most covered Beatle track of all time Mm -hmm. which for the fiscally orientated Mr. Harrison would have been a a huge delight I'm sure Um, (laughs) is there any um,
1: truth to the quote I've heard this in the past I'm wondering if you know of this quote I think it was Sinatra that said something along the lines of well that's the best Lennon McCartney song that's ever been written and it was like the most like best compliment that George Harrison could have got of being called a Lennon McCartney song in that time.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Jack, uh, uh, sorry, Sinatra used to always introduce a song, uh, you know, uh, that's a great song by Lennon McCartney. <laughs> and uh, and of course, George would be sitting there quietly seething on the sidelines. Um, <laughs> and he did call it the greatest love song of the last 50 years. Uh, I'm, a great, I'm a great Sinatra fan, but I think he absolutely mutilates it. <laughs> um, but but um, you know it was a great period for George and I have a theory, Corey, about George at this time uh, because he was coming into his own as a musician. He also had the respect of other musicians, yeah. Notably Bob Dylan, who with whom he had a great affinity and a great friendship, and also of course Eric Clapton. If you take if you take if you strip away rock music's most famous menage a trois. Uh, with eric
1: yeah exactly
0: <laughs> um, uh, if you could if put if you can put that to one side uh, so you know he his his uh, you know his morale was extremely good he was in a very good place and he didn't he was probably the least committed to the band of them all at that point because he knew that you know and he he was also exploring a lot of indian mysticism you know his life was was taking a different path in a sense but my i do have a slight theory about him. In 1969, visa vis Abbey Road, um, because I, I I feel that while well, I love Abbey Road. I, I could live without Maxwell Silverhammer, Corey. I could yeah, live without a, that.
1: That's kind of clear. You kind of touch on that a couple of times in the book.
0: Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I don't. I, I try not to get into observational politics too much, but my 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 point is that had Lennon and McCartney been able to park their egos just slightly and consider one or two of the songs that George had that eventually ended up on All Things Must Pass, which I still think is probably one of the top three solo albums of all time for for any Beatle, then I think Abbey Road would have been out of sight as the greatest record ever. Even a song like All Things Must Pass. of course is when you look at the lyrics there are digs all over the place yeah. to other Beatles and, and to his, and to his uh, current you know, his, his sense of fulfilment at that time and so perhaps Lennon McCartney when they looked at the lyrics for All Things Must Pass, absolutely said, I think we will pass and it's a shame because you know, they're great songs there's a couple of other ones where you know, he talks about you know, Where Did I Lose Your Friendship Mm-hmm. and it's clearly a reference to John and Paul, and it ended up on his first solo album. But these are great songs, and all things must pass. The Beatles actually did work on it in the studio, but for anybody who's heard the the renditions on YouTube, there's a dreadful lethargy there, and this lethargy, unfortunately, punctuated all the sessions, or most of the sessions, for Let It Be. Uh, and it's a shame, because had, as I say, George been given a bit more room in Abbey Road, Then you know, I think it would have been out of sight. And it's interesting to note in a modern context, Corey, that if you look at Spotify and if you were to ask somebody what is the most popular Beatles track on Spotify, they might come up with Hey Jude or Let It Be or She Loves You. The most popular Beatles track on Spotify is, in fact, Here Comes the Sun, which of course is a George Harrison track.
1: Yeah, and what an amazing thing to write such a just standalone happy optimistic song in the times that they were in and it kind of shows what you were touching on before of him getting out of the chaos because didn't he went and spent some time in upstate New York with the band in Dylan kind of saw like wow this is like a very freeing way of making music I'd like to be a part of that and I think he went he was in San Francisco in the summer of 67 for a little bit too so he kind of saw some of that flower power stuff
0: yeah. and
1: he's got so he's got all these ideas going on in his head and it's like going to work for him was terrible going home to London and like working with the Beatles was just like this is just stressful these guys are at each other's throats I'm not getting the respect that I feel like I should get and it's just this really interesting dynamic I think.
0: Yeah absolutely I mean when he when he uh, when he arrived back in London to begin work and let it be in in January 1969, he had, as you say, spent some time with the band and with Dylan, and he loved their collaborative approach to making music, you know, which is very rootsy, very free, you know, and very much group-minded. And as he put it himself, he arrived back in London and within two days, he described it as... Back in the winter of our discontent, I didn't no. know George was Shakespearean, but there you go. <laughs> every, day, every day is a school day, and um, and and he did say that. He, he said he described it as, you know, back in the winter of discontent, and within within ten days of being back in that situation, George had walked away from the Beatles. He had a dreadful row. Uh, you know, everybody thinks. He had a dreadful row with uh, with Paul McCartney over, and it's you know history will show you it's on the it's in the Let It Be film. It's a famous notorious scene where you know they're arguing over a guitar part, and everybody thinks that George walked out in the band because he'd had a row with Paul. It's not correct. He had a row with John, and and again by speaking to people who were there at the time, they're able to apply some uh, some truth to that. Yeah, uh, and he, and he had a very very um, unusual relationship with John Lennon, you know, he looked up to John, John was older, more worldly wise. But by 1969, George is a growing man. He's all the man he's going to be. You know, these guys had been together for so long, Corey, and they had been mushroom growing inside a Beetle hothouse. And by the time it comes to 1969, you know yourself, you know, you don't always hang out with the guys from high school. Your lives are beginning to veer off in different directions.
1: Very true. And
0: there are other there are other career interests on the horizon. And and George, you know, I think he said in the Beatles anthology, you know, he said if if if, if this isn't if this isn't working for me, then I'm out of here. I'm gone. And he left. Yeah. And there were frantic discussions. I mean, Lennon makes a a very you know, sarcastic remark. Oh, we'll get Eric and as if Eric Clapton's going to join the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. You know <laughs> that, that that shows you where we are. It's ludicrous. Um, and there were a lot of fraught conversations to try and encourage John to come, uh, George to come back into the fold. But um, you know, George was, uh, you know, he had seen how other groups had worked, and later in 1969. It's interesting because he actually went on tour with Delaney and Bonnie, yeah. which come from that same kind of fountainhead of the band, that way of approaching music. And, and he loved it, you know, because he, he's outside the Beatle bubble. It's a much more democratic process and a much, at the bottom line, it was much more fun.
1: And he kind of cherry picked uh, My Sweet Lord out of that too, didn't he?
0: He did, yes, <laughs> he did yes with, what am um, uh,
1: i'm wondering now because you do a great job of this of intertwining everything going on musically with the business side of things and we're a we're a, we're a songs podcast so we're going to stay on the music here for the most part but i really really am curious of your opinion do you think that alan klein who became the manager or did he was it some other role it was the manager right
0: yeah yeah
1: so he becomes the manager he becomes like in charge of other business affairs, it's it's three versus one with Paul sitting out on that. But is it his? Is he the is he the main reason for the demise?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. I've I've I tried very hard not to apportion blame. It's the most famous question in rock music history. Yeah, who split who split up the Beatles? and, and I've been very careful not to apportion blame. Um, you know, Yoko Ono is a very easy target. Easy. A because she's a, primarily because she's a woman. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't believe for a second that she she was specifically the reason. Alan Klein, again, just to apply some very brief context, was the manager of the Rolling Stones at the time, mm-hmm. and his avowed ambition was to, in inverted commas, get the Beatles.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, you know, ever since Brian, ever since Brian Epstein. Had died in nineteen in the summer of 1967. The Beatles, in a business sense, were rudderless, and they had they had formed their own company called Apple. Cost Steve Jobs a lot of money later on, <laughs> and um, and 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 Apple was set up as a kind of what they described as a Western communism for lots of showbiz artists to get a, a first rung on the ladder. Um, but the problem with Apple was that it began to lose so much money, even allowing for their earnings, that by the time of January 69 and early 69, they were hemorrhaging so much money, there was a serious uh, concern that the Beatles could go bankrupt. Yeah. Um, John Lennon famously gave an interview in which he said he was down to his last 50,000, which at that time was, you know, not chicken feed, yeah, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> Their finances were going south, so they needed somebody to come in and run the business. Uh, these guys, we have here a bass guitarist, a rhythm guitarist, a lead guitarist, and a drummer. They are musicians, Corey. Yep. They are not businessmen. Exactly. They like the idea of playing businessmen, but you know there's a terrible naivety attached to that because they are not skilled in running corporate entities. So they needed somebody to come in and run their business empire. And Alan Klein, when he heard when he heard Lennon's quote, then he's sitting in his uh, accountant's office in, in in New York, and he's rubbing his pudgy hands with glee because at that point he says one word, "Gotcha." Yeah. And he thinks he thinks that that's his opening to be able to go to London and make his sales pitch to the Beatles, all four of them, that he's the guy who can sort out the tangled arcadia of their own finances so he comes to London and he makes his pitch and Alan Klein is a very what you know blue collar kind of guy you know he, he wasn't that much older than them he'd made a he made he'd made a lot of money for other artists in America like Sam Cook uh, so he had a he had some kind of pedigree in 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 earning his artists a lot of money. But also
1: very rough around the edges going into, you know, kind of talking to these, what it sounded like in the book anyway, was these really posh London business elites.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's a very abrasive character, you know, no nonsense. You know, a very incongruous guy, you know, he would wear what you guys would maybe call turtleneck sweaters. Yeah. He, he actually he actually smoked a pipe. I mean, he could have come from a different era. But <laughs> when he made his sales pitch to Lennon, um, you know, they have a lot they had a, there were a lot of shared interests if you like you know they were both orphans as a kid they both lost their mothers very young they, they had a lot of uh, background similarities and Lennon, Lennon was an easy mark for guys like klein he was a bit of a hustler and and john was swiftly won over by klein's braggadocio if you like and um, and of course john then been so impressed because Alan Klein had a mantra, which was "Fu money." You know, he was, he, he told Lenin that he would make him richer; he would earn more money than croesus And Lenin, I mean, who wouldn't? You know, and um, and and he was won over by by Klein's abrasive sales pitch. So he Lenin then goes to George and Ringo, and and you know, he said, "Listen, I've heard this guy. He's the guy for me. I think he can sort out our finances." And and generally speaking, because John was the de facto leader of the band, yeah. George and Ringo kind of t- tended to fall into line. McCartney is a completely different situation because Paul McCartney loathed Alan Klein from the start. Yep. He didn't trust him, thought he was a crook. And, and everything, every, every fibre of his body told him not to trust Alan Klein. So in a business sense, all of a sudden, in one corner, You have Mr. Lennon, Mr. Harknessen, and Mr. Starr. And in the other corner, you have Mr. McCartney, and they are diametrically opposed to each other over the appointment of Alan Klein as the Beatles' manager. McCartney proposed an alternative, and the alternative was he favoured his, at that time, his future in-laws, which was Lee and John Eastman, Mm -hmm. who come from, you know, who have their own, They're they're entertainment lawyers in New York. Very successful firm with an outstanding pedigree in show business and entertainment. And he he favoured them coming on board to try and sort out the Beatles' finances. And, of course, the the Eastmans could not have been more different from Klein, you know, because they reek of Park Avenue privilege. You know, they're very ostentatious. And um, you know they they couldn't have been more different than the profanity-laden Mr. Klein, you know. Whereas the Eastmans were very proper, you know, did things in a a certain, a certain, to the manner born fashion. So these these are your diametric, the, the terrible dichotomy that had set in between them in a business sense. And of course, it seeps into the music, it seeps into their personal lives. But if I had to, if I had to apportion blame, then. I, I, I view Alan Klein Corey as as the demon king of the Beatles story, <laughs> because he was the one who pitched Lennon and McCartney into into uh, two opposing corners, yeah. and and he didn't really come good in his promises, because you know you know in a business sense they lost control of their own song publishing catalogue, Northern Songs, they lost that to city consortium when it went up for sale in the summer of 69 they also lost the opportunity to to buy NEMS which yep. was another company attached to Brian Epstein um, which could, could have made them a lot of money And and Klein is guilty of false promises boasts that never came to fruition and in the book there's a lot of a lot of cause and effect in the book, Corey. Yeah. You know, you know. If you look at events that happened in January '69, what I found was that sometimes uh, the consequences of those events would not become clear until maybe four, five, six months down the line. And the involvement of Alan Klein and his inability to deliver on his promises impacted on the day that John Lennon um, actually left the band yeah uh, and again i've had to draw all the evidence that points to that and it's more than just Lenin been fed up there are other unseen forces at play that come onto the board later in the year but they all have a direct link to what happened earlier in the year and that's why it's important to draw threads from one month to the next and it's like throwing a beetle pebble into a pool yeah and you see the ripples that emanate from that
1: it really is i mean that's kind of the as someone who had like a a decent history of the Beatles I've read another Beatles biography that wasn't as like I think one of the things that you can do because you're focused on this specific time is get so detailed with it but um, you know I've read other ones so I had an idea so something like that would happen where I, I read something from February and I'm like ooh I wonder if that comes back to us in like October November or something like that and sure enough it would one of the things that I think is really apparent because if you're a fan you're going to read it fast, but then there's just so much going on. This, this is just a year full of action. And it's just like, they're in the boardroom having these major arguments the next day. They're all in the studio writing an amazing song the next week they're off getting married and they've got all, they've got weddings going on. They're traveling all over the mostly Europe, but you know, all over the place. And it's just like, these guys were so busy and Obviously, I think that that's wrapped up really well in a song like The Ballad of John and Yoko. So let's kind of veer off in that direction a little bit and talk a little bit about um, what was going on outside of the scenes with John and Yoko, their marriage, their um, and their peaceful protests that they were really trying to, you know, they were using their public image to do a lot of good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, um, you know, 1969 was the year where John Lennon and Yoko Ono became probably the most famous celebrities in the world. Um, Not not so much for their um, The music, but because of John's political activism, uh, because that was the year of Give Peace a Chance, uh, and it was the year where John Lennon, in in essence, became a pied piper of peace for the youth culture, uh, and and a very important part to play. I mean, you mentioned the ballad of John and Yoko, you know, for all that was going on in a business sense, Corey, it all comes back to the music. Uh, And in the the, the case of John, uh, the ballad of John and Yoko, you know, John Lennon had an incredible ability to compartmentalise his emotions. You know, the day before, he and Paul had had a terrible argument at Apple over business. And yet the next day, he turns up outside uh, Paul's house and says, I've got this song, I need to record it right now. George wasn't there, he was out of the country. Ringo was out of the country. So really the ballad of John and Yoko is just the two of them. Yep. Um and, and it works really well. So it's a great example of yet again that for all that was happening in a business sense, that they were still able to come together, no pun intended, yeah. uh, to try and, and, and work something out musically. But but you know, John Lennon's political active John and Yoko used were were the first of their kind to use their celebrity. Uh, as a uh, you know to form some kind of protest fountainhead in a sense Um, and it was a pivotal year because you know 1969-68 Soviet tanks had rolled into Czechoslovakia you had student protests in Berkeley in America uh, certainly in Paris um, and and of course the the public disquiet over the Vietnam War was really at an apex and and America was a, a terrible crucible in terms of youth culture um, and 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 young people protesting not just over Vietnam but civil rights, obviously, um, and John Lennon was able to use his celebrity to act as a as a major a, a major um, influence in trying to persuade lots of politicians that perhaps this is not the way, this is not the path to go down, and it's interesting. I mean, You know, he's famous for the bed-ins, which most people would think is just crazy, you know. Yeah. Uh, You know, Lennon Lennon and Yoko go to bed for a week uh, for peace, you know. And when the first bed-in happened seven days after their wedding in Gibraltar in March 69, uh, of course, the press were invited to come and see them spending a week in bed. And, of course, the, the press were all arrived, you know, they'd all been hoodwinked. They all arrived at the bed and thought they were going to see some kind of beetle copulation taking place as if that's going to happen (laughs) Um, you know um, but it was a great example of uh, I mean John and Yoko were lampooned as the world's clowns but you know it got the message uh, of peace on every newspaper in the world at a time when newspapers were you know the most effective method of communication Uh, and of course they repeated the trick in Montreal in June, July 1969 but you know in America, especially, it's interesting to note. In, in Europe, I think they were treated as a couple of eccentrics. And Yoko was eccentric you know, as an avant-garde performance artist. Yep. Um, but in America, they were treated much more seriously. You know, and uh, and as a and, threat, right? Really. Yeah, the celebrity was given uh, a much more effective platform, in a sense. Uh, and and it's interesting to note that in November, um, one of the great peace protests over Vietnam, you know, you had something like half a million people singing, give peace a chance outside the White House. Um, and that's a very effective demonstration of one man's ability. Uh, it was a bit of a happy accident that they started to sing it. But, you know, and nevertheless, it was a very powerful moment, um, you know, because at that time, you know, people in television or reading American magazines are seeing images of children, you know, running down the streets naked, covered in napalm burns. Yep. It's not, the optics are not good. And, and here was John Lennon in a song trying to be a serious advocate for peace, and for the end of of, Viet, of the Vietnam War, and as I say, you've got half a million. It might even have been a million. I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, outside, outside the White House, while Richard Nixon's, you know, hunkering down inside. Um, unfortunately, for John, of course, you know his political activism at that time uh, guaranteed him a, a very nice entry in Richard Nixon's black book. Yeah. And of course, it caused him terrible issues down the line. Uh, with regard to immigration, you know, yeah. but I think John Lennon had a powerful part to play in 1969 as a political activist. Um, You know, he got to he, he had audiences with the likes of Pierre Trudeau in, in Canada. Yeah, uh, this young gung ho politician, and all of a sudden they began to take Lennon seriously. He wasn't just a crazy, crazy mop top. You know, he was much more than that. Uh, and also, he was a conduit for politicians. Uh, to, towards young people, you know, and and it was important, and I think his political ac- activism at that time, you know, was was a vital part of his uh, of his career. Uh, but as you say, you know, there was so much going on in 1969. I mean, when you talk about even that political activism, I mean, I keep on thinking, how did they find the time to do all these things, exactly. and yet at the same time produce to pretty good albums at the same time you know Um, there was just so much going on I mean you know you could be exhausted just thinking about it.
1: you really can and the fact that he's like battling a um, you know a drug addiction and all that kind of stuff too he's got behind the scenes that you touch on in the book he's got legal battles not only within the band but then with Yoko and trying to like get her divorce all settled and I mean just the the mental capacity to be able to deal with all that is incredible to me. And just, you know, the simple message of just give it a chance. Have we ever? We've always given war a chance. We're just trying to give peace a chance. What if we just tried it? It's just raising a question. It's, it's really phenomenal. And I'm, it, you kind of touched on this a little bit with the whole, the ballad of John and Yoko and how that was just Paul and um, John. This kind of happens a few times throughout this year where it's two of them, three of them, but not all of them are there together i think there's another i can't remember which song it was but there's a time when um paul and and george and and ringo but they're just you know not all of them were always there which kind of now that we have hindsight shows us like yeah this was kind of starting to go in this direction um and they're all being really creative and productive without each other Um, and i'm just kind of wondering did you have any ideas before writing um, that kind of changed throughout your research. Of oh, there was a sign that I haven't really seen before. Of this was this was coming to an end.
0: Yeah, I think it was just a general a gradual realization. As I say, once you began to look under all the stones and shine shone a light under these stones, and I think it was just a gradual piecing together of all the evidence. To hang on a second, I didn't I didn't understand that. And if that happened, and then how did this happen? Uh, and it was really just a, a question of. Trying to understand the context and the narrative, and 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 the situation of the times, um, and you know you know they all they, they didn't all play together on the same tracks all the time. Although I would think the vast majority of times they did. I mean, John Lennon didn't always play on every George Harrison track, yep. which tells you something about the relationship between them. You know, um, and and again, it's open to interpretation. Uh, and, and and it's not always it's very difficult to ascertain the truth behind these things. Even guys like Mark Lewis and it's you know, the doyen of Beatles historians, and, and it's really, really difficult. After I mean the longer time goes on, the more difficult it becomes to try and establish some kind of veracity attached to the whole thing, you know. So I think this was almost our last shot at it because people are, you know, time is Marching relentlessly on, <laughs> so you know, to try and get some of that, these eyewitnesses to history now before it's too late is difficult. I mean, I spoke to you know, John Lennon had a car crash in, in Scotland of all places in 1969. Oh, that was so such I an amazing back. part
1: of that book because I'd yeah. just been up to that part of the country,
0: <laughs> so yeah, exactly. So, you'll know yourself, it's very rural, it's um, you know, it's not very. It's not cosmopolitan in any shape or form. And, and a lot more rural in those days. And, um, you know, I was able to speak to the doctor who attended John and Yoko while they were in the hospital wow. for a week and and a nurse. And, and again, it was just an example of speaking to people who were there uh, and get their stories about it, their recollections. And it helped to humanise the, the band in, in some shape or form, you know. I mean, one of the things I, I, I you know, I, I was quite proud of is if you look at the cover of Abbey Road, um, and if you look, I've got it up in my wall here. I love that image, um, <laughs> and there are three guys down in the bottom left wearing white overalls, and they were painters and decorators who just happened to be working at Abbey Road Studios that day, hmm. and um, and I managed to track one of them down, and he'd never spoken about the fact that they. I mean it's almost like a great photo bomb core, you know, where these guys crash into the picture. And the yeah. photographer Ian McMillan was actually waving at them from his step ladder, saying, Guys, please get out of the shot and they refused to go. And I managed to track them down and they told me great one of them, this guy told me great stories about sitting in the Abbey Road canteen talking to the Beatles like they were regular guys. Yeah. And all that kind of thing I think was was interesting for me anyway, you know. Um, and i do look at that image and i see a band frozen in rock and roll amber Corey, and 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 it's like the great war poem you know age shall not weary them and i look at them and that's how i remember the beatles you know
1: that's great and i that's another thing that that you kind of go into that humanizing them because another aspect of that trip up to scotland for lennon was the um while he's in there you know McCartney tries to call him. I don't I think that he talked to a nurse he didn't get through the nurse was like in disbelief that Paul McCartney had just called and she was talking to him but he was like hey I just want to t- check on John and she just passes the message on to him and um, and you know despite everything that was going on they were they were brothers they wanted to just let each other know that they cared.
0: Absolutely you just hit the salient word there is brothers. I mean, these are the days of no internet. Uh, they didn't even have a phone beside their bed, so you know you would have to go through the hospital switchboard and you would ask for a condition report. As I, I remember doing that as a young journalist, um, and that, and and you would be given the bare minimum information. But there's no doubt. I mean, she she was in no doubt it was McCartney that phoned her, and I think it does speak to the the fact that even for all the rancor and the discord that was taking place in the background. John and Paul still loved each other, and I truly believe that. You know, yeah. I think they had the most complicated and complex hist- pathology and past. Um, but I always think this about the Beatles as a whole. That although although John and Paul are, are the key elements, you have four sides of the same square, and if you take one of them away, even if it's Ringo, I'm a great. Defender of Ringo Starr. Uh, His drumming in Abbey Road is sensational. Absolutely. Uh, John Bonham-esque, I would suggest. Uh, But if you take one of them away, then it doesn't work. And they all knew that. Um, and, And I think that they were absolutely a band of brothers. I think there was something, you know, I always loved the story of the Beatles outside the band. As a youngster, once I discovered the music, but then when I looked into the story of them and how these guys... How this constellation formed to leave a musical big bang in a sense, and I always loved that. I love the story, and yeah. that's why 1969 kind of drew me a wee bit because there's just so much going on. But I do think that they were a band of brothers, I think they genuinely loved each other. Um, it's a complicated love that only families can understand, and I think that uh, fans of the Beatles, uh, and it's amazing that people at you and I. Are still talking about a band like that fifty years after they split. Absolutely. So we'll they must it. have something going for them. Yeah, but I think fans, I think fans would have liked them to have ended the same way they began, which is four guys, four friends who really loved each other. Uh, and Ringo says that in the anthology, and you get a lump in your throat when you watch them. But unfortunately, fate got in the way.
1: Yeah. Well, the book is called *And in the End*. The author is Ken McNabb. and we we touched on a lot during this conversation. But if you if you enjoyed this, please go get the book. It is like I said, I read it so fast; I just enjoyed I enjoyed it so much. So, thank you for writing it. Thank you for researching it, and thank you for coming on the show, Ken.
0: Oh, Corey, listen, it was my pleasure, and thank you for your questions and and for being so kind with your remarks. It's been absolutely brilliant. Some people might say it's been fab.
1: Thank you, Ken. God, I really loved how he asked himself if the world really needs another Beatles book before he started writing it. But I can tell you that it did. I really, really loved the way that Ken constructed this book, and I learned a lot. So if you enjoyed this episode, go buy the book, tell a friend, and as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com.